you would turn to Colossians chapter 3. Now we can spread out a little bit. Those children are out of here. We can spread out. We can breathe. We can get that Americanized three feet in between us and spread out. We don't have to touch each other. We don't have to look like we love each other. Spread out. Spread out. Finally. Colossians chapter 3. We're walking through a study in Colossians that we have entitled Unrivaled. That Christ is to be supreme, that He is to be preeminent in all things in our lives. That that our love for Him, our allegiance to Him, our devotion to Him is to be unrivaled by any person or anything in this world. And last week we looked at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 and it said that we are to fix our minds on the thing above as you have been raised up with christ keep seeking the things above where christ is set your minds on the things above and not on the things that are on earth and i thought about second corinthians 5 that paul where he says that the love of christ compels controls him that's really what he's saying here not the things of this earth but the love of god that has been poured out upon us compels us. Our lives are to be overflows of God's love for us, His grace for us, of the gospel and us being adopted into His family through the gospel. Our lives are to be lived out in gratitude of that. And and everything that we see, it goes back to that. Even what we see today, the the thing that we see today, which is very serious, it's it's very heavy, it's going to be uncomfortable what we see today, but, but the why behind it is the gospel. The, the why behind it is believer. It's who you are in Jesus Christ. It, it goes back to Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. Walk in the manner in that which you've been called. Live up to live up to and in the power of that which you've been called. You, if you're here today and you are a believer, live up to that. Understand what that means. And again, not in your own flesh, but in the power of the Spirit living in you. Paul says in in First Peter one fifteen, as the one who has called you is holy. Be holy. Same thing. As you have received Jesus Christ, so walk in Him. That's the context. That's the the call. And what Paul says in chapters 3 and following, and specifically even what we see today, and, and again, moving forward, all goes back to that. What does it look like to walk in Him as a believer? What does it mean? Again, all of us as believers, we are works in progress. Even Paul in Philippians 3, he says, Look, not that I have obtained it, but I press on to maturity. Right before there, we've seen it in Philippians 2. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is taking that that salvation that we've been called to, we've been graced with and working it out, what does that look like in every area of my life? How do I live as a believer in every context in which we live? What does that look like? And and what Paul deals with today is, it's fitting just in his sovereignty that we are here today looking at verses 5 through 7, just giving the, just giving the, the, giving the, the, the state of the union, if you will, the, the where we are as a nation. In that seemingly every single week, if not every single day, there is a prominent figure in our country who has, is being exposed or being, being charged with sexual immorality on some front. It, it, seemingly every day, every week. Now, I'm not, I'm not at all saying, I'm not saying all those accusations are true. I'm not saying all of them are false. I'm simply saying, 
we would be foolish, naive at best if we disagreed that we live in a culture that is enslaved by sex. We live in a culture where Christians have adopted the world's view of sex. The world's mentality of it. The world's morality of it. Because sex in and of itself is not bad. It's a very good thing. But God has given very, very specific boundaries in which that is to be enjoyed. And, and our culture, again, in our own wisdom, we want to obliterate those boundaries. We want, we want to transgress those boundaries. We want, to, we want to handle it in whatever way we feel fit, whatever way we desire. We want to make up our own rules. And again, it goes back to, again, Genesis 3, the root of sin. We want to determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We do not want to submit in our own, in our flesh. We don't want to submit to what God says. We don't want to take something that we naturally want to do and confine it to one area of our lives. We want to do it when we want it, however we want it, and the way we want it. And, and that goes way beyond just sex. And, and we live in a culture, again, that, that, that worships sex. And, and we live, we as Christians have been Affected, impacted by that. It, begin, it, it ceases to be, things such as sex cease to be about God's glory and they begin to be about self, self-fulfillment, happiness. And, and our desires, what we see, are just like we see in this text, our desires become idols and we pursue them at all costs. And God ceases to be the center of our lives. God ceases even to be the object in who we seek to glorify in participating in whatever it is. In this case, sex. And you and I as believers, believers, we have to fight that tendency to, to live and behave like the culture around us. Christianity demands that we be different. It demands that we submit our lives to God's boundaries, to God's ways, to God's character, to God's word. We are, to, be, we are to, to place ourselves under Him in subjection. Why? Because He loves us. Because He alone is all wise and infinitely good. And, and we do it in faith. 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 All to His glory. And, and we, we must, again... When we don't do this, listen to Romans 2 real quick. Just Romans 2, verses 21 through 24. Let me show you the, the, the implications of us not doing this. He says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, you who rob temples, you who boast in the law, though you're breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Listen. For the name of God, and here it is, verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For, for us as the people of God to say one thing and then quietly do another, or even and later on in Romans 2, they boastfully did exactly what they said not to do. It's, it's, it's blasphemous to the name of our God. To say one thing and do another. To publicly to publicly condemn and yet privately participate. It, it, hypocritical at best. And, and that's what Paul is, is getting at here. You're not living up, as we'll see, to the standard of which you've been called. You're saying one thing publicly, and you're doing another thing privately. And he says it's hypocritical. Later on, Romans 2, he says, Look, how do, you, do you expect to not receive judgment for doing the very same thing that you condemn others for? He makes it very clear. And he's speaking to the Jews. They would say, Hey, we're God's people. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not like the Gentiles. Yes, you are. And many of us would say, saying, No, 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 I'm saved. But you're living like a Gentile. 
You're, you're living like you're unsaved. And, and the culture is winning the war. And, and God's name, my heart in my life, my heart for your life, my heart for our children's lives, would, that, would be that God's name would be glorified and not blasphemed through how we live. We, we bear the name of our Creator. We're His. And, and, and that's Paul. And Paul's point here again is set your mind on who you are in Christ. Understand who you are in Christ. Understand the love of God that has been poured out upon you and live that way. Again, by the power of the Spirit. Look what he says. And we're only going to look at verses 5 through uh, 7 today. Um, there's just too much here to go any farther. And, and I already preached too long, and it would have been real long. So we're. The thought here really goes through verse 11, but Lord willing, we'll deal with 8 through 11 the next week because it's talking about our words, and that's a whole other convicting topic. The power of words and how we use our words. That's a whole other issue that deserves a Sunday to talk about it. And He says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Here, here's Paul's main point. You see it on our handout really for the next two weeks. This week it's in the context of sexual morality. Next week it's in the context of words. Then he goes on to other roles that we take. But believers must aggressively fight sin. Aggressively fight sin. Why? So that we will accurately reflect our Savior. Displaying the power of the gospel in Christ in our, in, in our lives before a watching world. Aggressively fight sin. Ultimately, again, this has everything to do with who you are in Christ. It has everything to do about the glory of God. It has everything to do about the supremacy of of Christ, but, it, but it's also about unity amongst the body, purity. It's about effectiveness in us reaching the world around us with the gospel. We, Paul has gone great lengths to show us the what. We, we said last week that's the indicative in the Greek. He's indicating what God has first done. Now he's moving on to what is called the imperative. It's the why. Do this. This is, what, this is what we're called to do. And the first thing he says is kill sin. Aggressively fight sin. Again, our lives are to be about His glory. 1 Peter 2.9, it says, He has called you, and as the people of God, you exist. Here's what it says. To declare the excellencies of the One who has called you. You are a holy royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That's Colossians 1, 13 and 14. You've been rescued from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. Listen, He did not call you and I. He did not crucify His Son for you and I to be freed from sin and the penalty of sin and then to go back and live according to the same sin that you and I have been freed from. That makes no sense. But that's our tendency. He didn't crucify His Son so that you could just bear the name Christian and then have no power over sin to defeat sin or have no different, or, or even to live to self. He freed you that you would live to His glory and to declare His excellence. It's exactly what God told the Israelites. I'm going to set you free from Egypt. Why? So that you will serve me. Not to live to yourself. So I'm going to set you free from Egypt. Go to Exodus 8, He says it. Go to Exodus 9, He says it. I'm going to free you that you would serve me. All the way back to Genesis 1.26. We were created to, as image bearers. Sin marred that. What God is doing in the gospel is He's recreating you and I to be image bearers in spite of our sinfulness. We, we live to reflect the glory of the One who has saved us. 
Everything goes back to that. And, and, and what he says in verse 5, and you see it on your handout, is we drill down what this looks like and the why. Because of who we are in Christ, we must be separated from all forms of sexual immorality as it denies who we are in Christ and it amounts to idolatry. Everything that we see here in verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. The, the therefore is built upon who you are in Christ. Therefore. And again, our new identity, you see it there on your handout, in Christ is the basis for our separation from all sin. They're, of this, they're the things of this world. They're not, they're not of, of, of our nature now. We're a new, new creation. You, you've been given a new, a new nature in that sense, the Spirit in you. And, he, and by the Spirit, Romans 8, Galatians 5, you are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. He's forming in us a new person in that sense, in the image of Christ, of who we're saved in. And, and the language that Paul uses here is, is aggressive. Literally, the word is kill. He says, kill your sin. Listen, the word he uses, it goes way beyond just trying to control it or suppress it. He's saying, kill it. Starve it. Don't play around with it. Don't mess around with it. Don't try to do it in your own strength. Kill it. Kill it. And you think about that. If, if many of you, and I, so I don't say this lightly, and I don't mean to bring up bad memories or just emotional things, but many of us in here have, can't, have had cancer or, or are battling cancer. You would never go into the doctor and say, hey, just get most of it. Just shrink it a little bit. You know what you'd say? Get rid of it. And you know what you'd say? Aggressively as possible, get rid of it. If it means taking out my lung, take my lung out. Whatever it takes. Why? Because sin, again, it's like yeast. It spreads. Cancer spreads. And he's saying, kill it. I mean, that's what Jesus referenced in Matthew 5, 28, I mean, 29 through 30, when he said, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your arm causes you to stumble, cut it off. What he's saying is this. It goes way beyond that, because even if you don't have eyes, you can still sin in the mind. What he's saying is aggressively kill your sin. Whatever, whatever's caused, kill it. Fight it aggressively. And, and, and Paul gives us very, very specific instructions with regards to sexual immorality. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee immorality. Notice he didn't say fight it. You notice he didn't say pray about it. You notice he, did, you know what he said? He said flee it. You know how you fight sexual immorality? You flee it. You don't sit there and you try to, you don't sit there and you say, I'm going to muster up enough strength to beat it. I'm going to, no, no, you flee it. You flee it. Why? Because look at our culture. It's going to whoop your tail. It's going to win. It's winning now. Flee it. Why? Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. We are commanded to fight sexual immorality by fleeing it. You deal with it strongly by running as far away from it as possible. Not being associated with it in any way. Not trying to muster up. You don't try to muster up enough strength to fight it on your own strength. Because listen, I promise you, if statistics bear out, there's, there's a bunch of us in this room today that bear the marks that that don't work. It doesn't work. Flee it. As radically as you need to get with your sin, deal with it. Flee. With regards to sexual morality. Joseph in Genesis 39, 12, he gives us an example of that with Potiphar's wife. What did he do? He ran away to his own peril. He fled. He fled. And, and everything, what Paul says here in, in chapter 3, that in verses 5 through 7, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, listen, all of these have their roots in sexual sin. 
immorality there is the Greek word pornea. It's the broad Greek term for sexual activity outside the bounds of God's, of God's design for marriage, which would be a heterosexual union between one man and one woman. That's, that's the boundary that God has put on sex. If you're not married, sex is off limits. And today, I would say, if you're a man and you're not married to a woman, it's off limits. If you're a woman and not, off limits. One man, one woman. God has bound that up in the union of marriage. Impurity there, the word is similar, but it points to our thoughts that constitute sin as well. It talks about lust in the mind or things internally that, nobody, that, that other people wouldn't see from the outside. But listen... It, where do actions begin? Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know what, I think I'll commit adultery today. Listen, a man commits adultery or a woman commits adultery, they've already committed that in their mind long before they commit it physically. I promise you. I promise you. They didn't deal with this, the, it in their mind. You go to James 4, where does it, where does it begin? You go to James 1.13, where does it begin? You don't deal with it at its root. And you, 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 you play around with it or you contemplate it and before you know it, how did I get here? Gradually. Gradually. You didn't deal with it. You, you, passion, evil desires. It talks about that inner lure, that desire. You know, we, we want to, again, we, we have a desire to have sex. And if we, don't, if we don't control those under the power of the Holy Spirit, if we don't submit to God's designs under the power of the Holy Spirit, listen, they take over your life. That's what he's saying. It's going to take over your life. It's going to enslave you. It's going to consume you. And they are deadly and they destroy the person who doesn't flee. And, and you can't read 1 Corinthians 6 and not agree and not understand that there is something especially tragic and devastating about sexual sin. Every other sin that a man commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral man or woman sins against his own body. It's literally like drinking poison. You're destroying your own body. It is uniquely devastating. It is uniquely controlling. And again, listen, this is one area where Satan has duped us into thinking it's a private thing or it's not a big deal or, or, or it's victimless or it's harmless. L listen, the st statistics show 60 to even teens, 60 to 70% of just teens in this room today are addicted to pornography. 60 to 70%. If you go to their dads or their moms, same stats. Not ironically. Same stats for men. It, it's, I mean, this news to me, it's immensely popular amongst women. And, and here's, where, here's where we've been duped. Listen to this. This was crazy. They, I saw this survey. They, they surveyed people under 25 years old. Okay. 56% of those people under 25 said that recycling was morally wrong. They would not be fond of me. 50, I don't recycle. I just throw it all in the garbage. I just want to get it out of it. 56%. 56%. Listen, only 32% of that same people said that viewing pornography was wrong. So it's more morally obtuse or morally uh, offensive to not recycle than it is to look at pornography. That's our culture. So it's more harmful to not recycle than it is to view pornography. We're more offended and we love trees more than we do God's creation, supreme creation, other human beings. That's our culture. That's the environment that our children are being raised in. That's the environment that we're parenting in, that you and I, moms, dads, that we're living in, even coming after us. And, and you go to 1 Corinthians 6, again, back to it. Paul deals with why. 
Why is it so devastating? Why flee it? Why be so aggressive? Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Listen to me. It's, there's nothing, there's no such thing as just sex. That's a lie. That is a lie. Especially, especially for a believer. Verse 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your own body. It's not victimless. It's not meaningless. And, and, and that's the... Pri- Listen, the primary reason we abstain from sexual immorality, is, is, it has to do with God's glory. It has to do with who we are in Christ. Listen, you can throw STDs and pregnancy and all these other things in there. Listen to me. The number one reason we abstain from sexual morality is it, it is against the glory of God. Our kids need to know that. It can't be more about them than it is about God. That won't last. It won't work a long haul. It's got to be about the glory of God. Not about me or, you know, I don't want my daughter to get pregnant because that'd be embarrassing to me or that'll affect her life. Yeah, that's true. But guess who most is affected? The glory of God. Her heavenly father or his heavenly father. And and look at verse 5 at the end. Where does all this begin? Look at greed, which amounts to idolatry. Sexual sin originates, originates in greed. Another word there is covetousness. And the root of that is idolatry. And you see it on your hand now. Covetousness and idolatry at the heart of these and other sins in that they reflect a lack of contentment in Christ. And so we try to fill the void in other places. The root in our hearts, the root in your children's hearts, the root in their parents' hearts is a lack of contentment in Christ. A lack of satisfaction in Christ. A lack of of contentment in the supremacy and the unrivaled nature of Christ. And so we go looking other way, places for satisfaction. And, and, and namely, the number one person, the number one thing that we replace Christ and His exalted position in our life and the rightful position, guess who the number one person is? It's self. The number one idol in your life and my life is self. Self. I mean, that's the, you can take any sin, I'm convinced, you take any sin that you ever commit at the root of that sin is selfishness. Self. Self. And what Paul shows us here in First Corinthians, I mean, in, in Colossians 3, you see it in your handout, every sin, especially sin, finds its root in a refusal to worship God as the one true God. Refusal to submit yourself to His Lordship. And that constitutes idolatry. The, the motive behind them is idolatry. It's self over God. It's a refusal to see yourself rightly. And, and, and sexual, again, sexual sins fight at our ability to lead a Christ-centered life. If you, if you went to almost every vice list in the New Testament, whether it's Romans 1, 26, Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 5, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 10... Sexual sin and idolatry are always linked together. They're always in the same list. Always. Galatians 5, same thing. Ephesians 5, idolatry. And and you see it on your handout. Sexual sin is rooted in, in covetousness and idolatry in that it displaces God as the proper and only object of our worship, and replaces God with self. You're now king. You're preeminent. Your desires are preeminent. Christ is no longer preeminent. He's no longer unrivaled or supreme. We are. We take the rightful place or assume the rightful place of God in our lives. 
And, and this is one way in which God's people in the world are to be contrasted. And Paul is, is emphasizing here the eternal relevance of a believer's faithful submission to Christ in every area of his life or her life. There is an eternal relevance. It's not victimless. It's not just sin. It's not, hey, nobody knows. Listen to me. They know. It affects you. You see it on your hand now. Believers, are, what he says, they're dead. You b- consider the members of your body as dead. Believers are called to die to their former life as they participate in the worship of the risen Christ and how we walk. Now, again, not content with just externally looking the part, but living out the fact that in Christ we have been freed not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And again, everything is based on who you are in Christ. And as a result, you know what he's saying? Do not tolerate even the slightest sin. Don't tolerate even the slightest sin. Be separated. Any sin. And and listen to what he says. In Ephesians 5, 3, but immorality or any impurity, any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper for saints. Same thing that Peter later on says, you live in such a way that even if they accuse you of sin, it is so out of place that that mere accusation will be foolish. Why? Because of who we are in Christ. Everything goes back to who you are in Christ. You are a temple believer of the Holy Spirit. Flee, flee, flee. But, but, not, only, but not only fight aggressively and, and, and not, only, um, not only just because... Again, and it, Paul goes here in verse 6 to explain. Again, we, we immediately gravitate to earthly things. Remember, Paul said, set your mind on things above. That's where verse 6 comes in. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Your second point, believers are to be separated from sexual morality because those whose lives are characterized in this way will face God's wrath if they persist in sin and do not repent. And if we're honest, we have a tendency to, we don't like to talk about God's wrath. We are real quick to skip over those, God is jealous, well, let's not, tell, let's not talk about that. God's wrath, let, let's not talk about that. It, 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 especially, but especially if it's dealing with our own lives. And we love to talk about God's love more than His wrath, as if wrath was some Old Testament characteristic that, oh, well, now that Christ died, God no longer, God no longer has any wrath. That, that would be no. No. God is unchanging. He's immutable. A.W. Pink summed it up. And listen to what he says. He says, we tend to think that we need to apologize for, at least we need to keep it under wraps regarding God's wrath so that people don't think less of God. Like it is some dirty little secret about God we need to keep from the public, as if we were some blemish of, as if it were some blemish of God's perfection, something we almost resent about being a reality, or that it is unwarranted, too strong a response to sin, or that it is reserved for only the worst of the worst sinners. And before you think, no, that's not true. Listen to this study amongst Christians. Christians were surveyed. Ninety-seven percent found God to be forgiving. said that God was loving. Only 37% said that God was judging. And only 19% said that God disciplines believers. Clearly, they didn't read Hebrews 12. Very clearly, God disciplines those whom He loves. Verse 11 says, No discipline seems joyful for the moment, but for those who have endured it, Those who have been trained by it, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Guess what God is doing in our discipline? He's producing righteousness in us. Ridding us of sin, producing righteousness. 97%, oh, God's loving. 19, do you, think for a moment. 
if that's your theology, how do you think that plays out in the way they live? If God doesn't discipline, if God doesn't judge, if God, then I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And guess what you find most Christians doing? Whatever they want to do. And then they go back to grace. If you were to look up in a concordance, if you were to, a concordance is, is where you, you look up a word and it will tell you every time that word is used in the Bible. If you were to, to look up in a concordance and you were to look up the term wrath of God, you will find in the Bible that there are more references to, in the Bible to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are mentions of His love. Why? Because He hates sin. Hates it. There's coming a day when He's going to return to this earth and He's going to judge sin. And not only is He going to judge sin, He's going to judge those sinners who committed that sin. The first time, listen, he says, I, don't, I didn't come to judge, I came to provide salvation. But listen, you forego that salvation, you ignore that salvation, there's coming a day where he's coming back and there will be no forgiveness, there will be judgment. We don't like to talk about that, we don't want to hear about it, but it's true. Again, he made it very clear. Again, listen... The question, let me, let, me, let me explain wrath for a minute. There's a lot of ways we could define it. I want us to understand it. You see it on your handout. God's wrath is His holiness stirred into activity against sin. His holiness stirs Him. He has a deep, intense anger towards sin. The, 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 the reality is, is that the wrath of God is, is, is as much an attribute about God as any other attribute. It is as much of the perfection of God as any other attribute. It doesn't, comp it doesn't compromise His perfection in one, one, one ounce. God is not embarrassed, listen to me, about hating sin. He's not embarrassed about dealing with it. He has gone to great lengths to provide a way for you not to experience His wrath. Romans 2.4, do you not think kindly of God's tolerance and patience? Knowing that He's guiding you through that tolerance and patience to, to repentance so that you can avoid it? But listen, it's coming. And it's birthed out of God's holiness. It's birthed out of His hate for sin. It starts with hating sin. And, and I think that's part of our issue. If we're honest... I wonder if why we don't respond to sin the way that God does is, let's be honest, do we really hate sin? Do we hate sin the way God hates sin? Or maybe we've settled for just kind of hating the consequences, but not really hating the activity. See, real repentance, it hates the sin. You're not just feeling sorry about the consequences. Go see 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow, godly sorrow brings about repentance. Worldly sorrow, you know what it produces? Death. Worldly sorrow is focused on you and I. It's focused on consequences. It's focused on how it reflects on us. Godly sorrow is focused on the character of God, that our sin has offended a holy God. And because of that, we stand separated. He has every right to judge us for that sin, and yet in His great mercy, He crucified His Son so that we could, in Christ Jesus and believing Him, we could what? Avoid the wrath of God. Avoid the wrath of God. The, the wrath is, God, again, the God's wrath, you see it on your handout, is totally, totally justified towards our sin and towards sinners who commit the sin. And it's not just a futuristic thing. Listen to this. For the wrath of God, Romans 1, 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident. Paul goes on to say, the current evidence, again, of his hate towards sin, he gave those individuals over to their sin. He gave them over. Multiple times it says he gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. Hatred for sin. And, and you see it on your handout, God's wrath is justified because God's creation suppresses truth about Him. He's made it clear to them and we suppress it. It's not like we didn't know. 
God's wrath also be is justified because God has revealed something about himself and, and his creation has rejected that revelation. We've rejected it, and instead of worshiping him, we've worshiped self. And God, again, at some point gives them over. Active, current wrath to people who willfully reject God and turn to their sin and the things God hates. God is seen leaving them to themselves and leaving them to self-destruct. You know, if you choose chaos for your life, listen, God allows that chaos to work itself out in your life. He might. That's why Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I mean, you, you look at Romans 2, later on in 2.7, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immorality, I mean, immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Your choice. Now, obviously, under the sovereignty of God, Tony. I'm teasing. We're big, we're big sovereignty of God people. But yet, you reject the truth of God? You choose to live however you want to live? Don't deal with our sin. It spreads like cancer. You're storing up for yourself. Even as a believer, listen, even as a believer, you're going to be judged on how you stewarded, see 1 Corinthians 3, how you steward your Christian life. You're going to build it on wood, hay, stubble, and it all burn up, or you're going to build it on gold. What, what is it? See 1 Corinthians 3. None of this, well, I'm saved. No, 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 listen. Pursue holiness if you're saved. In some ways, prove you're saved by pursuing holiness. Make sure of your calling by what? Pursuing holiness and even having a desire. You say, why don't I desire it? It may be that you're not saved. It might probably be that you're not. That Satan has duped us. Pursue who you are is what he's saying. Satan is a deceiver. He's a masquerader. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And we will be held accountable. Listen, God, yet, listen, and God's wrath falls, it falls into place even more when you realize how patient he is with our sinfulness. Again, Romans 2, 4, do not think lightly of God's kindness and tolerance, knowing that it's that kindness and tolerance that leads you to repentance. The reality is, God did not strike me down the first time I sinned. The reality is, is God bore with me and has borne with me for, eight, for the first 16 years of my life and the last 25 years of my life and been patient in dealing with my sin, leading me to repentance. And so God's wrath falls all the more appropriate when you consider that, how patient He's been with our sin. And how, how easily we've trampled on His glory and His goodness by really just not dealing aggressively with our sin, being casual about our sin. I mean, 1 Timothy 1.15 is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the chief. God's wrath falls all the more in place when you realize that he crucified his own son. He poured out all the wrath that he has towards all of sin onto his son. That whosoever would call upon his name, son's name, repent, could be saved. Saved from what, Chris? Saved from the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ bore it on your behalf. So his hate and his wrath falls all the more into the right context when you realize he made a way for you not to suffer that wrath. And you reject it. He took all his wrath and poured it out on his son. Jesus is that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report to us what kind of reception we had with you and how that you turn, listen, how you turn from God to idols to serve a living God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the what? Wrath to come. 
5.9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, who died for us so that whether awake or asleep, we will live for him. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up. The, the great news, you see it on your, on, on your handout, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus' death and resurrection satisfied God's wrath for those who turn from sin and look to Jesus for salvation. That's Romans 3, 24 through 6, that he's the propitiation, the appeasement, the, the satisfactory payment. That he's a demonstration of God's righteousness in what? That God deals with sin. The good news of the gospel, look, you and I are not under the sentence of divine wrath due sin. Live like it. That's not an excuse to be casual about your sin. Thirdly, you see in verse 7, and we'll close here, in putting to death sin in our lives, we are living out the victory that has been won for us through the work of Christ, as well as displaying who we are in Christ. Verse 7, And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. The, the solution to sin is not you trying to muster up enough strength to fight it. And do it. No, the solution to your sin is to repent to acknowledge your sin, and to trust Christ's offering in our place. See Acts 3, 18 through 23. Repent, and then flee in the power of the Spirit living in you. The good news, you see it, for every person here is that no matter the sin, and in this case we're looking at sexual sin, no matter the sin, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then practically, we pursue that righteousness that we have been positionally given. You're righteous. So he says, live righteous in the power of the Spirit. But the gospel, again, it doesn't stop with that initial cleansing of our righteousness. You and I have not been set free to nothingness. We've not been free to self. We've not even been set free to live according to self. We, it's not a ticket to heaven. It's not, oh, I've got my ticket. Now I can live how I want to live. And then when I get to the end, I just show this ticket. Oh, then you can go in. No, that's not, that's not it. Look at verse 7. In them you once also walked when you were living in them. You are commanded, believer, to live out who you are in Christ. You not only believe in the gospel, you live according to the gospel and by the power of the gospel based on who you are in Christ. That's the whole thing what Paul says in verse Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that you're a temple? You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Not therefore, go live however you want to live. No, glorify God in your body. That's the response. And God's, God's grace, salvation, not only cleanses us from sin, it gives us the power to walk away from that sin. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 9, he goes through all these sins that we won't name, but listen to verse 11. Such were, he says, that will, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Do you see the contrast? It's the, those are the very things that you were cleansed from, that you were, that you were saved of their power. Why are you going back? And you see it on your hand now. The beauty is that Christ's death commands and empowers the very separation it commands. We've seen that over and over in, in, in Colossians. Verses 13 and 14, verses 20, verses 2 and 11 of chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. God gives us the power to do exactly what He calls us to do. Listen to Ephesians, again, Ephesians 5. We began reading verse 3, but, but listen 4. It says, Immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. And this is under the context of, of be imitators of God. He says, as, as you've been loved with Christ, walk in Him. Same thing he's saying in Colossians. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper of saints. And listen, it's very specific. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting 
which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, again, you see him connected, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And listen, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Same phrase he used in Colossians. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What's he saying? He's saying, walk in the light that you presently dwell, if you're a believer. There, there ought to be a huge contrast between who you were outside of the gospel and who you are inside of the gospel. Huge contrast. We exist to declare the excellencies of the one who has saved us. And any sin, in this case we're dealing with sexual sin, but any sin, fight. Deal with it aggressively. Don't be casual with it. Flee. I mean, you know, he says, don't even, it shouldn't even be named among us as is proper of saints. It shouldn't even be, it should be so obtuse. Again, when, when somebody of the world accuses a believer of something, the world ought to say, look, I know believers. That is so out of line from what I know about believers, but that's not the case. We ought to be so separated from those things. To even name it amongst us, to even name it amongst us is ridiculous. As God's people, we have a new ethic, we have a new identity, but out of that identity flows a new ethic. We've got to see ourselves for who we are in Christ. By the power of the Spirit, we've got to pursue the holiness that God has declared upon us in the likeness of the one who has declared it upon us. Again, 1 Peter 1.15, Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Pursue it. Again, all by God's grace, all motivated with love. That we would be transformed, again, day by day by day into the likeness of the one who has called us into his glorious grace. No matter, no matter what it costs us, may our love for God supersede our love for the things of this world and our love for our sin. May we hate our sin, hate the same way that God hates our sin. Why? Because we love Him more. 